And good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 today. As always, we'll begin in a word of prayer. So let's bow together. Our Lord, we do thank you for this most holy day of the week. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as friends, as brothers and sisters, fellow believers in your Son. We thank you for redeeming us, for calling us to be your people, and thank you for the gift of your word, which we can now open and study together. And Lord, as we study today's text, would you use it to build in us an anticipation for all of the great things you have in store for us? And Lord, for those who may not know you with saving faith, Lord, use today's text to give them the desire to have this as their own, to close with you today. Lord, we commit this time of study into your hands. We pray that you would use it for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So yesterday it was my privilege to officiate the wedding of Marcus and Liberty Neitzel. The service was beautiful, as they always are. Marcus was dressed in a dark suit with a gray tie. Liberty was clothed in a long, flowing white dress. And as the service began, Marcus and I made our way to the front and center of the auditorium, and then we got to watch as the bridal party came through, one couple at a time. And finally, there was a pause in the service, and the music changed, and then Liberty emerged with her dad. Together, they walked down that center aisle together, and she was beaming, and Marcus was beaming. Then they met each other at the front, and they clasped hands, and they locked eyes, and then they began reciting their vows to one another promises that they were making. After their vows were complete, I pronounced them husband and wife, and then shortly afterwards they signed their marriage license, which legally declared them to be one. Liberty's cheeks were wet from tears. Marcus was also very emotional because months and months of anticipation had finally given way to reality. Now, now they were husband and wife. This new relationship brings the close of a former life, and it brings the beginning of a new adventure, one that should last all life long. And God has purposes for their marriage. One of those purposes is to provide everyone around them with a living, breathing, flesh and blood illustration of the everlasting spiritual bond between Christ and his church. The scriptures often speak of this bond between Christ and his church. He speaks of us as a, a groom and a bride. And this is a fitting illustration. As the groom, Christ has come to his church in love, and he has pledged himself to her, and he has promised to be her provider and her protector, and he promises to be her loving head, and then the church responds in love to him. 
promising faith and devotion, receiving his protection and provision, receiving his loving headship. Christ and the church are just like a bride and the groom. The scriptures also tell us that a great wedding day is coming in which the spiritual bond between Christ and the church will find its grand consummation. That wedding day will mark the end of a former life and the beginning of a new adventure, one that will go on forever and ever, a new story in which every chapter is better than the one before. In today's text, Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, gives us a glimpse of that great wedding day. Now, just to set the wider context for our passage, recall that we've just concluded a major section of Revelation, which began in chapter 6, went all the way through chapter 18. And this whole large section covered a future time known as the Tribulation. This will be a dark time in world history. During this time, the church will have been caught up into heaven to be with Christ, and then the unregenerate world below will be experiencing successive waves of divine judgments. These judgments will stretch for about seven years, and they will come in waves of seven. There will be seven seal judgments, and then seven trumpet judgments, then seven bowl judgments. The repetition of the number seven in the tribulation will speak to the fact that these are God's perfect or complete judgments on the world of unbelief. While many people will be redeemed during this time period, the, the overarching purpose is to judge the world of unrighteousness, to prepare the world for the inauguration of the kingdom of Christ, which will be a kingdom of righteousness. Now we come to chapter 19 and we see the page beginning to turn. That dark tribulation period is coming to an end. The bright new period where the millennial kingdom of Christ comes, that is about to begin. And we see what will be happening during this great transition period. You know what we'll all be doing on that day? As the old way gives, gives way to the new, as the old life we all lived gives way to new life in the kingdom of Christ, what we will all be doing together is worshiping God. Be worshiping Him for all that He has done for us and all that He will yet do. Let's see this now from our text, beginning in verses 1 through 3. The Apostle John writes this, After this, and again, he is speaking of the tribulation. After all of those tribulation judgments on earth. After this, I heard what seemed to be the the sound of a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Hallelujah. That means praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Verse 3, and once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So friends, you can see now that as that dark 
time of judgment comes to an end. And as we are right on the cusp of this glorious kingdom of Christ, there will be worship in heaven. Worship for all that God has done. The worship will come from a great multitude. Now, this multitude is not identified for us here. However, their song is very similar to a song offered by angels in chapter uh, the same as the song offered by angels in chapter 5. And so this leads me to believe that the great multitude of verses 1 through 3 is an angelic host. So just imagine this with me. As all of God's judgments are coming to their conclusion on earth, up in heaven there will be a worship service. And the leaders of the worship will be the angelic Hosts, millions and millions of angels, angels of all sizes and descriptions, angels in all of their creaturely glory, and they will all be joining their voices together in song, and they will be praising God for all of his great works. They'll be singing a hymn together, recounting all the mighty deeds that God has done. You notice they'll be worshiping God for his salvation, for they cry out, Hallelujah, salvation belongs to our God. Now remember that these angels are very ancient beings. The scriptures tell us that the angels were created before the world was formed. And the book of Job tells us that when God created the world, the angels were there to worship God for his creation. And so these angels have been around for a very long time. They were there when God spoke the world into being. They were there to witness God creating the very first humans, Adam and Eve. And he watched, they watched him form Adam and Eve in his own image and create them for a relationship with himself. And they watched as God walked in the garden with them in the cool of the day, conversing with Adam and Eve as a, as a man would converse with his friends. They had seen all of this eons ago. But then they also watched with horror as the great angel Lucifer, perhaps the greatest of all of the angels, as Lucifer fell from his holy state, as he allowed pride to take root in his soul, and then as he led a whole host of angels, perhaps a third of God's angels, against God in rebellion, they watched them all fall from holiness. And then they watched with equal horror as the devil began tempting Adam and Eve to join them in their rebellion against God, to sin against God as they had done. And they watched as Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation, sinking their teeth into that forbidden fruit. And these same angels watched as Adam and Eve fell under the curse of sin and death. And then they watched generation after generation born into the world under the curse of sin. They watched as the world continued to get worse and worse until all of the thoughts of all of men's hearts were only evil continually. They watched the sad story of human existence through the millennia. Finally, watching the grand culmination of it all in the tribulation period as a kingdom 
led by an antichrist, sought to literally wage war against the God of heaven. Think of that, God's own image bearers trying to defeat him on the field of battle. These angels watched all of this unfold. But at the same time, at the same time, they also watched as God in his grace did not abandon humanity to its sin and misery. In fact, right there in the Garden of Eden, right after Adam and Eve had sinned, they watched God come and provide clothing for Adam and Eve to cover their shame. And they listened as God made this promise to our first parents, promising them that, that yes, though they had done great damage to this world, yet he could fix it, and he would fix it. They heard God promise that he would send a Savior into the world. And it would be his own son. He would send this Savior into the world. And this Savior would crush the head of the serpent, the devil, destroying all of his power in the world. And that he would secure the redemption of a people for his own glory. That God would do this. And then they watched as Adam and Eve responded to God's promise with repentant faith. And Adam and Eve became the first human beings to be redeemed. And then they watched as God in his grace preserved a faithful remnant through the generations. Preserved a whole nation for himself, the nation of Israel. And then they watched as God fulfilled his promise by sending his Savior into the world through that chosen nation. And these angels, they watched as the Lord Jesus succeeded where Adam and Eve had failed. He resisted Satan's temptations, and then he went to the cross, the man of perfect righteousness. He went to the cross and there voluntarily took upon himself the full weight of our sins, making an all-sufficient atonement for our sins. And they watched the Son of God die on the cross, experiencing the wages of sin. But then three days later, they watched him rise from the grave in power and in victory and then ascend into heaven. And then they watched as the message of Jesus and the cross took root in the New Testament church. And then as it went to all the nations of the earth and they saw the multiplied millions respond to the gospel offer. People from every tribe and language responding to Christ, becoming a part of the great redeemed people of God they watched God's salvation spread. And now, friends, as the, the new age begins to dawn here in Revelation 19, future to us, but as these same angels witness the new dawn coming, all evil, all unrighteousness finally being put down, the kingdom of Christ being inaugurated, all of the fullness of God's salvation on the verge of being enjoyed, these angels cannot help but worship God for his salvation. And so they cry out, Hallelujah! Salvation belongs to our God. And they will also worship God for his glory on that day. Notice they cry out, Hallelujah! Glory belongs to our God. Now friends, God's glory is simply the sum total of all that God is and does. His glory is what makes him uniquely God. The scriptures tell us that when we are redeemed, 
the, the glorious truth is that we become partakers in his glory. So that we, at a, at a creaturely level, begin to mirror his attributes. So that through Christ, we rise from dust to dignity. And the angels witness this too, and so they sing hallelujah. Salvation and glory belong to our God. Then they go on and they worship God for his power. Hallelujah. Power belongs to our God. Now, God's power is his ability to do all that he sets his mind to. It's his power that moves the redeemed from death to life. And which one day will renovate all of the heavens and the earth. And they worship God for his power on this day. Notice they also will worship God for his judgments. Verse 2, for his judgments are just and, and true. In fact, the supreme manifestation of God's salvation and his glory and his power is in his commitment to judging all unrighteousness. It is through the judgment of all that is wicked and evil that the salvation of God's people is fully realized. That the fullness of God's glory is put on display. That his power over all forces, including the devil, is most fully revealed. So they sing, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. And we know it because his judgments have come. And his judgments are true and just, meaning that all the judgments of God are always in line with the truth. And they are always just. So that when God executes his judgments, no one can ever charge God with wrongdoing. And then the great example of the salvation and glory and power of God in executing judgment. It says, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Remember in Revelation, this, this great harlot is a symbolic representation of the unregenerate world in its organized rebellion against God. And perhaps in particular, it refers to the organized system of false religion. The supreme example of God's goodness and justice and faithfulness and truthfulness is in his judgment of that great, rebellious, unregenerate system of the world, which was leading people away from the living God which was persecuting God's people. Now, finally, it is taken away. And then verse 3, once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now, if you need a proof text for the eternality of hell, here it is. Her smoke goes up forever and ever. Friends, if you find it shocking to hear angels praising God for casting things into hell, understand that the angel's joy does not come from the contemplation of the misery of those being judged, but rather it comes from knowing that this means the vindication of God and his plans and purposes. It's the vindication of his righteousness and power and salvation. You see, the casting of that great harlot into the abyss means the end of violence and bloodshed and corrupt governments and false religions. It's the end of 
misery and oppression. It means God has triumphed once and for all, and his people get to triumph with him. That's why they are singing. That's why they are singing. God has saved his people. How did he do it? By taking all that was against them, all that was against God, and casting it into that great dustbin of hell, and it can never, ever reemerge. Never. Because it's there forever and ever. That's why the angels are worshiping God. And now verse 4. Here we're introduced to a new group of worshipers. It says, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, which means, yes, all that they've said, we say too. It's all true. Amen and hallelujah. Now, we met these 24 elders back in chapter 4 of Revelation. There we learn that these elders represent the New Testament church. Chapter 4 taught us that they are clothed in white linens, which represents that they have been glorified. And they're wearing crowns on their head, which speak to the rewards that they have received from God. And on this great day, the, the New Testament church will be around the throne of God, along with all that throng of angels. And as the angels lead the worship hymn, the church of God will be saying, Yes, it's all true. We praise him for his salvation, for his glory, for his power, and even for his judgments. And these four living creatures, we learned about them in chapter 4 as well. The four living creatures are the four angels who live closest to the throne of God. Chapter 4 said that one of them is like a lion, another like an ox, another has the face of a man, another is like an eagle in flight. And all four of them have six wings. They're full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to give praise to God. And on this day they are praising him for bringing an end to all darkness, to bringing them to the very dawn of a new day. So, friends, as the current age comes to its close and the new age prepares to dawn, there will be a worship service in heaven. And all the angels of God will be singing in that service, and the church of God will be there singing too, and even the four living creatures will sing of God's salvation and power. And then verse 5, it says, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and you who fear him, small and great. Now this, this is Christ himself. Christ, the Lamb of God, seated on his throne. See, friends, the Son of God is driven by a passion to see his Father glorified. And so, on this great day, as all of the angels and all of the saints are worshiping God around his throne, Christ is going to be right there in the midst of them, encouraging them on, saying, yes, All of you, keep praising him. Keep singing to him. All that you're saying is true. Keep on worshiping the Father for his great works. And friends, what an awesome picture of heaven we are given here. Here we see heaven as a place of beauty and of happiness and shouting and singing. It's a place where angels and men mix together in perfect fellowship It's a place where Christ is at the center of it all, and he's on his throne receiving and encouraging and directing the worship of his people. 
And heaven is also a place, apparently, where everyone is aware of the events transpiring on earth. For in this worship scene, we, we see the angels and the saints alike, all knowing the times that they are living through. They know that this is the end of God's tribulation judgments. It's the very, on the very cusp of the kingdom of God. They know the progress of God's plans on earth. But in heaven, everyone is so in tune with the will of God that even his judgments are a cause of celebration for them because they know it means that God is winning the day. The New England Puritan Jonathan Edwards suggested that in heaven, next to the worship of God, the great preoccupation of all the residents of heaven is this, watching the progress of God and his gospel on the earth celebrating every gospel victory, seeing that every day the world is drawing nearer to the great climax of it all, and that fuels their worship as they see each new soul being redeemed and the whole course of the world turning ever closer to that final revolution when the dark kingdoms of men come to their, their end and the kingdom of Christ begins. No, friends, this scene also teaches something about our purpose as human beings. It tells us that we were made to worship, and it shows us that we are happiest when we do so. When our hearts are captured with the beauty and the glory and the works of God, and it fills us so much that we cannot help but, but give forth our praise with our lips, that is when we are happiest of all. There's no greater state for a human to be in than in a state of worship alongside God's other people. And so, friends, let us be worshipers of God. You know, we don't have to wait until this coming day in heaven. We can be worshipers of God right here and now. We can experience the joy that would be ours if we would give ourselves to this now. Friends, worship God today. Thank God for the salvation you already enjoy. It's not yet complete, but it has already begun. Thank God for the work that he has already done in you. Thank God for the gift of the new birth. Thank him for the resources he's given you to complete your life of faith and godliness. Thank him for his indwelling spirit, for his written words. Thank him for a good local church. Worship God for all the ways he has shown his glory and his power in your life. Praise Him for the way that He is helping you to conquer indwelling sin, for how He has given you the empowerment you need to face all manner of adversity in this life so that you can finish your race with joy. Thank Him for His innumerable daily acts of kindness to you. Friends, God deserves our worship. We are happiest when we are worshiping Him. And so let's worship God today for all that He has done. But then, friends, as we continue with our text, we see that on that coming day of worship, the angels and the saints will not just be worshiping him for all that he has done. They're also going to worship him as they think about what he is yet to do for them. They know the best is still to come. 
Look at the beginning of verse 6. John writes, And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. So, verse 1, John hears the sound of a great multitude. Now he hears the sound of a multitude again, but this one is even more powerful than the prior. This one is like the great sound of ocean waves crashing against the shore. It's like the sound of a great thunderstorm in the sky. A greater noise than before. And who is making up this multitude? Well, I believe that it is everyone in heaven singing together. It's the angels. It's the 24 elders. It's the church. It's the four living creatures. It's Old Testament saints. It's martyred tribulation saints. It is everyone all together joining their voices in song, worshiping God. And here is what they worship him for. It says, Hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Or we could also translate this, He has begun to reign. This refers to the inauguration of God's direct rule over the earth through Christ. And even at this point here in Revelation 19, you understand the kingdom of Christ has not yet come. But it is so close, it's on the cusp. I mean, a blink of the eyes and it will be here. So close that they worship God as if it has already become a reality. They say, praise God, for He reigns. Make no mistake, friends, Christ will have His kingdom. It will come. Now verses 7 and 8, they worship Him for something else. They say, and let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Friends, as I mentioned earlier, the scriptures routinely picture Christ and the church as a bride and a groom preparing for their wedding day. For example, in Matthew 9, Mark 2, Luke 5, and John 3, Jesus is called a bridegroom anticipating his wedding day. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes to the church saying that his goal for the church is to present her to Christ as a pure virgin bride. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 27 through 29, we read these words, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might present her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And here's how Christ has loved the church. He has died for her so that she might be a pure, spotless, blameless bride for him on that great wedding day. Right now, Christ and his church are in a state of betrothal. That means he has pledged himself to us. We have pledged ourselves to him. And legally, legally, we are already one. His righteousness is ours. Our sins have been paid for by his atonement. Legally, we are one. 
and yet we are still awaiting our great wedding day. And Christ is making preparations even as I speak to you now. He is getting the world ready for the wedding ceremony. And we, with God's help, are making ourselves ready too. We are continuing to battle that indwelling sin. We are trying to root it out so that when the day comes, we can present ourselves to Christ as a pure, spotless bride. And friends, that wedding day is coming. It's coming fast. Here in Revelation chapter 19, we get a glimpse of it. Here we see that the wedding of Christ and his church will occur in heaven just before Christ descends with his church to inaugurate his kingdom. On that great wedding day, Christ and his church, groom and bride, will finally become husband and wife. And what does that mean? Well, it means that on that day, Christ and his church will be formally and publicly and forever joined together in a spiritual bond that will go on forever and ever and which will bring them both everlasting delight. And then, friends, together, together, as husband and wife, Christ will descend from heaven. And Christ will take his throne and his church will be by his side. And together they will rule this new kingdom as king and queen. That is the destiny of the church. That is your destiny if you belong to it right now. And so we read verse 9. To the angel he said to me, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now in John's day, the wedding supper followed the wedding ceremony. Usually it occurred the evening of the wedding ceremony. And then the marriage supper would last for several days afterwards. So there would be the wedding, and then there would be a great, long celebration of the new couple. And it would include feasting and laughter and fellowship. It would be a beautiful, extended time of celebration. Well, friends, here in Revelation 19, we learn that after the wedding of Christ and his church takes place, there will be a wedding feast as well. There will be a wedding celebration. The celebration will take place on earth after Christ and his church have come and begun their kingdom together. Friends, that marriage supper of the Lamb, I believe, is, is the millennial kingdom of Christ. A thousand-year celebration of the wedding of Christ and his church. A thousand years of laughter and fellowship and feasting and reveling in the reality that is this new couple and this new kingdom that they rule together. And the passage says, blessed are those who are invited to the supper. That means happy are all of those who get to be in the kingdom with Christ and his bride. Blessed are all those who belong to Christ's church. They will be at the supper. Blessed are all of the tribulation saints who were martyred but were faithful to Christ, and they are there at the feast too. 
And blessed are all of the Old Testament saints from Adam and Eve all the way through. Blessed are all of them because they get to be a part of it too. Blessed is every last person, Old Testament, New Testament, every saint of every age, for they are all going to be there at the great wedding feast. They will all have a part in that millennial reign of Christ. Now, friends, what has captured your imagination today? What preoccupies your thoughts? What gets you the most excited? What are you most looking forward to right now? Is it reaching the next rung in the career ladder? Is it getting a bigger house? Is it having better cars? Is it the thought of building up that nice big nest egg for retirement? What is it that's capturing your heart right now? Well, friends, let it be thoughts of the coming marriage to Christ. And of the wedding feast to follow, let your heart not be captured with all of these things of the earth, these things that are passing away. Let your imagination be filled with thoughts of standing before Christ as a spotless bride and formalizing the union that already exists between you. Let it be the thought of seeing your Lord face to face, of being a queen as he reigns as king. Let it be the thought of laughter and feasting and rejoicing and singing in his kingdom. And let it be the thought of that kingdom giving way to eternity where there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more sin, no more pain. Forever and ever it will be God and his will being done and you being right there to rejoice in it. Well, finally, now we look at verse 10. This is the Apostle John writing again. He says, Then I fell down at his feet. That is, he fell down at the angel's feet the angel that was revealing all of these things to him, fell down at his feet to worship him. But he, the angel, said to me, you must not do that. Why? I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And I believe this extends his quote, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The point here, friends, is that God should be worshipped for all he has done for us. He should be worshipped for all that he has yet to do for us. And both now and forever, he should be the sole object of our worship. This final phrase, the testimony of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. This means that, that not only is all of the work a work of God, but that even the revelations of these truths, the, the information we've been provided, even this comes from God. It comes from God the Holy Spirit. This, this did not originate from the angel. It originated from God. And so now and always and forevermore, God alone must be the object of our worship. The works are His, and even the fact that we get to know about it ahead of time, that revelation of it, comes to us from him. See, my friends, as great as the angels are, in the end, they are nothing more than servants of God, just like you and me. The same goes for all the great prophets of the Old Testament, like Moses and Elijah. Same goes for all the great men and women of the New Testament, like Peter and Paul. Same also goes for Mary, the mother of Jesus. And for all the saints of church history, my friends, there is only one God 
Only one Savior from creation to consummation. Only one being who deserves our, our worship, our praise, our prayers, our trust, our gratitude. Only one. And that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So my friends, don't ever, don't ever prostrate yourself before a statue of a created thing or bow before a picture of one of God's image bearers. Don't ever pray to a saint or an angel seeking their aid. No, you worship God alone. You pray to him alone and you thank him alone for your blessings. Let's worship God. Let's worship Him for all that He's done for us, for all that He will do for us. Let us worship Him now and always and only in our hearts, with our voices, through our lives. Let's bow together in prayer now. Lord, we do thank You for this text. It is a bright, shining light after a very long, dark portion of Revelation. We thank you for it and help us, Lord, to anticipate, to anticipate this great wedding day and then the kingdom and the feast that will follow. And Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you in saving faith, drive this text home to them. Use it to give them a desire to be a part of this. Help them, Lord, to close with you today by repenting of sin, by expressing their heartfelt faith and trust in your Son and all that he has done for them. Let them become betrothed to Christ today. And then let them speak of it to their Christian friends seated next to them or to myself or to Pastor Scott or to someone else that they're comfortable speaking with so that we can help them take their next spiritual steps. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.